welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Back joining me today for a second chat about major incidents and some of the kind of nuts and bolts of how these things work in practice is JP Lochery. JP, thanks very much for joining us again. No, good to be back. Thanks very much, Dave. What do I need to remember? What do I need to keep in my ready box if I drive around the corner and something bad is happening? So for me, major incidents are a distillation of everything about pre-hospital care. It's about doing the basic things really well every time. It's about being consistent about the things that make a difference. It's about, as you've said before, getting the air in and out and the blood round and round and minimising damage to the patients. So to do those things, we have to have a consistent method of communicating. And for that, we use methane in major incidents. And that's a really useful mnemonic to give us the right elements of how we talk about major incidents and how we pass that message. And then the CSCAT, or CSCAT as I call it as well, about how we should organise our command during a major incident to make sure that we do the things that will keep us safe, keep the scene and the patient safe, and do the things in the order at which they're needed to happen. Over the years that I've been doing this role of major incident lead for Scottstar, I've simplified the way that I look at these things as well, and that the debriefs from every major incident I've been involved in have always had the line, communication could have been better. And I've got a few things that will raise that might improve your communication during major incidents in the way that we pass information triage to definitive care or if you're working in rural practice about where the patient's likely to end up at some point is really important to try and limit secondary transfers because that can be difficult to achieve during a true major incident. Realistic medicine is a big part of Scottish medical practice now and I like to think that that actually has some application in major incidents and not just an everyday practice as well. And then about managing the expectations of our patients, of our other teams that we work with and of the receiving facilities that we're going to send the patients to to make sure that they know what interventions we can do in a normal, let's say, red team job, but what we might not do during a major incident. And similarly, the things that we have to do every time to make sure that we give the right care to our patients. Let's take some of that apart. So run us through methane and what it means, what it stands for. I like to think of methane as almost the ABCDE of ATLS. It's the thing that we should get right every time. It's a standardised, structured approach to major incident communication. So, of course, the most important bit of that is the M, the major incident standby or declared. And it probably wouldn't surprise many people that that often gets forgotten about, that you can be a long way into an incident when someone actually thinks, have we ever told anybody that this is a major incident? And actually invoking methane and starting that methane message gets everybody's attention, makes sure that everybody's then listening to the next bit, but also gets everybody into the mindset that that's what we have to do next. The exact location, the E, is again a really important one as to which direction of the motorway something is happening, and what hill something is happening on, or in what area it's happening, because some of these will happen in areas where there isn't a postcode so actually having grid references is really important. And the what three words type elements of various apps and various things can have a huge impact in making sure you get to the right place at the right time. The type of incident, so that's the T, 
That's, again, a hugely important one, both in the way that you'll approach the initial throws of the incident because something might not be safe. For example, if there are firearms involved, then medical teams aren't necessarily going to be responding directly to the scene, but to a rendezvous point, and that's really important to know about as well. But also what sort of injury patterns you can expect or illness patterns you can expect from your patients and already start to think about where these patients are likely to go. So multiple major incident trauma patients up in the west coast of Scotland outside Fort William, for example, are likely to all end up requiring transfer to some sort of definitive care. And it's about trying to minimise that and start to think forward to the transport methods that you'll need to get in place to have that happen. The hazards is partly covered by the type of incident, but that, that also encompasses the things that we don't necessarily think about of hazards as the environment around us, the cold, the wind, it may be the environmental conditions that have caused the major incident in the first place, but also about the hazards that we take for granted when we are responding as pre-hospital responders to individual patient incidents, such as broken glass or spilled fuel. But in a major incident, when you have multiple patients, that might be something that you don't necessarily think about. So making sure that that's communicated early and that that's being considered and that you know that you've taken mitigating steps to make that safe. Access to the incident. This is enormously important and if you hark back to last week's talk, the one that we had on the expressway in Glasgow, access to that proved potentially challenging because of the number of assets that had to respond to it and effectively block the carriageway with ambulances, cars that were on the carriageway behind the bus, but also vehicles coming up the wrong side of the carriageway to be able to access it. And the way that we then egress and get patients out, so making sure that there's someone that's responsible for addressing that and what direction we're going to have patients moving out of the scene in so that we have forward momentum. The number of casualties and then of course the severity or triage categories if we're knowing what they are. And in the early throws that might just be single figures, tens, hundreds, or it might be that someone's already had the opportunity to triage those casualties and give us some ideas to the injury patterns that we're likely to face. And then finally the E, the emergency services that have been activated and that are required and that includes thinking of the other agencies that might be involved, such as local hospitals. Have we told them that this has happened and are we going to be going there? Making sure that fire and rescue are there, for example, if there's an unsafe building that might need secured or people going into. And making sure that the commanders for those services start to get together and start to plan how we're going to tackle this incident as a unit. That's brilliant. It gives a kind of nice clear run through and some of the thought processes behind it. I guess... For a lot of folk, particularly your rural basics responder who comes across a, a big smashed up car or a few cars smashed up, it feels like quite a big jump to make that decision to declare a major incident. What are your thoughts about, you know, is this something that we should be doing? What's your threshold for doing that? Yeah, it's a very difficult one when you're responding to an incident and it looks big to you, but you might have that fear that you will be looked at as overreacting if you push the button. I think that there's a role, certainly, for the major incident standby in those circumstances because that starts that ball rolling of the structures and processes being put in place to tackle it as a major incident, but it might not necessarily cascade to Scottish government and executives, for example. I think a basics responder or a paramedic responding to what looks like a big incident, starting the process by saying this looks like a major incident and giving a windscreen methane report, so the very basics of major incident standby, where it exactly is, what you're seeing at first and the sort of rough numbers of casualties. 
and communicating that to the local ambulance service to get your assistance there. So in Scotland, via the trauma desk, who can access the red teams to get help, even just by telephone to see what you're seeing and get some information to help you make that judgment and decision. But also they can then start to get things moving towards you to help to support you because if it looks like a big incident, it's likely that you're going to need help. A rural practitioner, a rural GP, a rural pre-hospital responder declaring a major incident to me would be completely fine. And as I said last week, what might be a relatively contained and straightforward incident in an urban conurbation such as metropolitan Glasgow might look very different if it's three o'clock in the morning and a quad bike's overturned with four people on it in an island off the west coast of Scotland. So communicating that early, completely fine by me. I'm, I'm well up for that and I'd support any GP who felt that that was required at that stage. And it can be hard to keep all that information in your head as well. So I'm not sure if the Basics app has it, but the EMRS app, certainly has the methane functionality where it pops up as a checkboxes that you can fill in and then that exports it as a text file. But also then there's the Prometheus methane app that's free for smartphone devices, I think OS and Android. That's a really useful thing to have on you so that you have that reminder of what things you're supposed to look for, but also being able to export that information so that can be emailed, messaged or WhatsApp to share that information in an organised and consistent fashion as well i must admit one of the apps that i use is the jessup one and we've not really touched on jessup it's probably worth just having a quick eyeball over what jessup is yeah the jessup app in particular to address that one first jessup app is absolutely terrific and given the very useful basic information on how you communicate in major instance how things are organized as well but jessup is a sort of the joint principles of how the services fire, police and ambulance all work together, what those principles of major incident management are, a useful reminder sometimes of what those principles and priorities are to make sure that we are back doing that consistent thing. But also just some really useful and um, the joint decision module which will be spun whenever there's a tri-service command meeting, various checklists such as the II March checklist to remind us again of the things that we have to consider. And the, the things that weigh down the bottom of that, such as the humanitarian issues, the reminder then when you've looked at that of the, actually, I now have six bystanders who have been helping out and seen some things that they might not wanted to have seen. But I've also got people now injured, walking about in inadequate clothing who need to be protected from the elements. It's a really useful reminder to have available to you. And all these things are really useful to have on smartphone devices, which are almost ubiquitous these days. Absolutely. I was chatting to somebody who was involved with some of the Manchester incidents and he was saying that taking voice notes and trying to capture decision making processes and when and where decisions were made in the form of voice notes via smartphone was central to his process. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's something that we've now advocated as well as we used to have a dictaphone, but it seems that they are kind of going out of fashion even in healthcare now, which still uses pages and fax machines. But the voice memo app on iPhones in particular, so that's really useful to use. It means you don't have to try and find a notepad to write some bits and pieces on. It gives you a contemporaneous record of the decisions that you've made and why and who was involved in that decision. And also it can then be shared securely so you can email that via NHS email etc so that that can then form part of the log as well and you're not sitting for six hours afterwards trying to remember at three hours into the incident i made that decision but i can't remember why so it's always useful to do that as you go 
Um, and also it means that you can be looking around and communicating and taking part in the major incident rather than trying to find your notepad and something to lean on to scribble that down as well. Of course, in big incidents, there should be a logist, which is one of the roles of the ambulance service. But that's something that will be put in place after a time. And in a remote and rural incident, that might not be practicable at all. So making sure that you've taken some record of the decisions that you've made will always help you out, particularly when it comes to something like a fatal accident inquiry or a coroner's inquest down the line. Yeah, certainly trying to interpret my own handwriting on a good day when I'm writing at a desk is, is hard enough, but trying to do it on the fly is <laughs> voice notes are definitely the way forward. Retrieval practitioners and EMRS hear you there when they're trying to read doctors' handwriting on run sheets from trauma jobs, I'm sure. <laughs> so that's methane, and that gives us our dashboard review of the scene, but certainly really as early as is humanly possible to start getting that ball rolling. What about once you've got out of your car and you're heading almost into the scene? You mentioned CSCAT, and I guess this is where you start to make that jump into CSCAT territory. Yeah, so the, the methane gives you the way to talk about it, and then the CSCAT gives you the way to behave and the way to approach it yourself. When all you want to do as a healthcare provider, as a paramedic, as a doctor, as a nurse, is to get in there, get your hands on and try and help some patients. But the important thing about this is about maintaining some sort of command and control because as soon as that's lost, it's very difficult to get that back. And also the first trained person on scene might actually have the best mental model for how that scene is evolving and what things have happened since they got on scene as well. So the initial part of that, the command and control, is making sure that that structure is implemented and if it hasn't been then doing so. The safety, that's both of responders and patients, but also of members of the public. So in a number of incidents, and as we've seen in Manchester, bystanders wanted to help. Some of the London incidents, people were told, we want you to move back because we don't believe this scene is safe yet. And those members of the public stayed to help. And that's commendable. But we always have to make sure that those members of the public are safe and as protected as possible. So if there are hazards that we are taking steps to mitigate that or informing them that we do need them to move on and taking over the roles that they've been undertaking up until then as well. Communications, second C, that's a little bit about the communications out of the scene, so the methane report and the sit rep, but also about how we're communicating in scene. So as I discussed last week, the difficulties communicating in rural Scotland when mobile phone signal might be limited or there's geographical reasons why you might not be able to communicate out of the scene. Um, making sure that actually you've got runners in scene that can get that information back and forward and that you know how that you're doing that because if we're on radio talk groups, they can be exceptionally busy and sometimes actually face-to-face -face discussion or with a runner gets that information across much more effectively. The assessment is of a few things. So it's assessing the scene, both the layout of it, how it looks, what's likely to have happened, and that gives you the useful information as to what the injury patterns of the patients are going to be, but also about assessing what resources you need just now and what things are likely to be needed down the line, including already starting to think about the three T's just down beneath that as well. So triage, we can talk a wee bit about as we go on as well, but about trying to pick out the patients who need intervention first as the principal and making sure that we do the most for those patients in the initial throws so that we don't have patients who are lying in scene who could have been conveyed to hospital with minimal intervention and who would have done badly by staying on scene for a significant time. Treatment. Once triage is done, we'll talk a wee bit about treatment and we'll divide that into the P3, P2, P1 casualty treatments. 
and then about the transport as well. So already starting to think about how we're getting patients to hospitals or to definitive care, what transport's available, is that suitable, both in terms of the actual transport platform, but who's operating on that platform as well. And when patients have had red team type interventions, about the capabilities of the healthcare providers that are there to undertake those interventions if they're required again, or to monitor for the complications of the interventions that we've administered so far. So there's quite a lot of elements in that as well. And for that reason, it's useful to have, again, these principles, even just on, if we've got leg boards, on a laminate on a leg board with methane on one side and CSCAT on the other, just those initial things that are often forgotten about, the very basic things that can help us, but can be so crucially important. And when you discover an hour down the line that that's been forgotten, sometimes you've missed the boat by that point and it's difficult to get that back. Now, you've mentioned the underlying medical principles that, that underpin this. What specifically are you referring to here? As I said, major incidents, I believe, are a microcosm of pre-hospital care. So I think the biggest thing is to triage the casualties first. So it's about making sure that you know who is at greatest risk and about directing the resources to those patients. Most things that most patients in major incidents require are in the skill set and wheelhouse of our standard ambulance service responses and doctors sometimes get in the way of those responses so it's about making sure that if that patient requires basic airway maneuvers and hemorrhage control and rapid extrication that we do that but we have to decide which patients are at greatest risk first so triaging them is really important. The time critical treatments and interventions that are needed then they need to be instituted in priority order as soon as possible so again, the A, the CABC principles apply, the air in and out and blood round and round applies as well. But we have to make sure that we get the patients out into somewhere that they can be safely treated, but that the time critical interventions then happen. But as a team organising ourselves to decide which ones are needed first, and that trying to secure vascular access to give the TXA might not be the first thing that you want to do that might be down the line, but deciding for that patient what the priorities are and in what order. The air in and out, blood round and round principles, that was taught to me very early in my medical career, but additionally, relieving pain and minimising disability and damage to patients as well is something that the ambulance service does very well on a day-to-day -day basis. It's about making sure that patients have had sufficient analgesia, fractures are splinted, that we're managing to minimise secondary brain injury, for example, all of those things are really important when it comes to then the giving life back part of the Scottish Trauma Network. It's not just the saving lives, but we have to try and minimise the ongoing morbidity to the survivors of these incidents as well. And then finally, about the dispersal and the direction of patients to the best place to manage those injuries. The Trauma Network across Scotland is evolving and later this year is due to fully go live and that will mean that we've got more of a framework to fall back on to decide which patients need to go to which level of care. But it's about which hospitals have that level of care as well. So some hospitals in the west of Scotland, for example, don't have trauma and orthopaedic surgery for trauma. But they do have it for elective orthopaedics. But there's very little point in sending patients to a hospital when they then need to be secondarily transferred unless that's for stabilisation purposes. That's difficult in remote and rural Scotland but it's about deciding which patients have to be directed straight from scene to definitive care for example the time critical head injury 
and which patients can safely go to hospital to have ongoing treatment and stabilisation to then be transferred later. And working with local teams, working with pre-hospital teams, working with the ambulance service in terms of what transport platforms are going to be available to get those patients moving. It's relatively simple things that can make a huge difference to the forward momentum and then the outcome for patients. We touched on a few things that I think would be worth drilling down into. One of the things that seems to be a recurring theme is is that kind of communication piece. How do you make communication work in a major incident? Yeah, as I said, the communication's thought to be the biggest failure in every major incident I've been involved in. That it always comes out in the debrief that it could have been better. And that's true, but there are certain things that I think that we need to make sure that we take care of to make sure that it is as good as it could be. And that goes right back to the activation and tasking for major incidents. So it's about working out a simple process for the call-in and call-out. So by that I mean hospitals calling in resources, but pre-hospital services calling out, either for their ambulances, managers, basics responders. It's about making sure that that process is as simple as possible, but also shares the information so that other members of the service, for example, know what's happening. So looking at that in the EMRS way, what we have done is on our app, we have major incident notification that then pushes onto all of our smartphones, gives us a big blaring tone that you can't ignore, interrupts your do not disturb mode, and then it gives you a number to call and a very simple push notification to declare whether you're available or not. That's a really straightforward, noisy and intrusive way to do it. Some services use pagers, some services use online solutions, so when people become aware, then they can declare themselves available. But even looking back to the very simple things such as that, that can make a big difference in making sure that teams are getting on the way quickly. If that's not done effectively, then big delays getting teams into hospitals or out from hospitals to help the patients can be overly complicated. But also making sure that very basic things that we should all know how to use when we work in pre-hospital care, like how we operate our radio handsets, so things like operating between different talk groups, making sure that we know how to link then from pre-hospital into hospitals as well by being able to point to point the hospital if required. It's always entertaining when we have our EMRS major incident CPD day to do the airwave refresher and lots of people are overconfident in their abilities to do it until one of our retrieval practitioners gives the radio to someone and says that's fine, change to talk group this and then I want you to point to point me and give me a methane message. Um, and that usually then leads to a bit of, oh, well, let's let's look at that again. Let's revise that. <laughs> but even just making sure that you know how to use those basic things. Your contact details need to be up to date as well. Um, I've not changed my mobile phone in about 15 years. So I've got the same number. That's really useful. But um, making sure that your contact details, particularly if it's your place of work, has changed. If you're a doctor in training or a paramedic that's working in different places, that if you need to be contacted for basic responses, that those details are kept up to date. Several major incidents have raised the possibility of using WhatsApp to communicate during major incidents. And that's, that's a useful tool. It can detract from the communication that has to happen because that can be completely peripheral and the commanders and the scene, the ambulance service and the hospitals have got no idea what's happening in that WhatsApp. So it is a useful adjunct to the other communication methods. There's a really, really good St. Emlyn's blog on how to declare a major incident that gives a little bit of reading for people to see exactly what sort of things you should be looking to do and how you declare it and what sort of strategies you should use for that. It's interesting, particularly in a world where, certainly from the basics point of view, rural 
clinicians are often given a chap on the door and working out their beds by somebody who's passed by and seen the car overturned in a ditch. And it's a long way from the formal treble nine trauma desk activation that mm. you guys get. And I guess formalizing yeah. that communication piece early on is going to be pretty key. Yeah, and making sure that someone knows that you're responding as well. That's really important, particularly when it comes to your personal safety. We collectively, fire, police, ambulance, need to know which personnel are responding to that incident, um, both for a statutory responsibility to keep our staff safe, but also knowing that we've got enough resources there. So making sure that we know who's at the scene, how they've travelled, and at the end of the incident, making arrangements for how we're going to get them back and get them back online for whatever service that they've come from as well. So that's one of the ways that we use WhatsApp. Again, there's another St. Emlyn's podcast on that as well. But as I've shown in one of the slides, one of our consultants uh, received a notification that we were being put on major incident standby for an incident down at the Strand Ra Ferry Terminal. Now, this was quite early one Tuesday morning, and that message came through loud and clear on our WhatsApp but gave minimal patient information. It's part of the log for that incident, so... It can be requested as evidence, so not putting disparaging comments about your colleagues, uh, about other responders, but also just making sure that it's the minimum information that's there and doesn't replace the records in the log because that should just be used for operational aspects such as, right, we are now cleared at X hospital, we can be picked up, or if your basics responders operating together, I'm now responding to this area and I will be on call sign X. That can be really useful information because... It comes through quietly. The major incident top groups can often be very crowded, very noisy, and sometimes some of that information can be lost. And it also means you can refer back to it. It can also be monitored from out of scene. And that's one of the big advantages of the way that it works for us is that our specialist services desk and the ambulance service monitor this group to see what we are doing, what the communications are, and what the up-to-date information is as well because sometimes that can be lost in the stramash on the top group, but that can be quite clear written down in that and can be used to refer back to later on as well. And certainly that concept of methane being an activation, but also potentially being a, a living method of communicating that updating information as you get it, particularly in terms of, of numbers. Yeah, definitely, because the hazards change. The access and egress might change as you change the scene or as something becomes unblocked, a road becomes open again. So that methane, yeah, as a living, breathing entity is really useful to keep that information consistent each time. As I said, in ATLS, if you're struggling and you don't know where to go next, fall back to go back through your ATE again. And in methane, it's very similar. So if it's been an hour or two during a major incident and there hasn't been up-to-date methane, Usually one of the site commanders or incident commanders will be asking for that to be updated. And that, again, is really useful to know how many casualties you've dealt with overall, but how many are still to be dealt with. Because what can appear to be a major incident actually can be largely contained because all of the patients have been dispatched to hospitals or to definitive care, and you might have relatively few casualties. And that up-to-date methane might actually be the thing that triggers us to start standing down the response and getting people back home to their families. I guess in amongst all of this is trying to have some statutory record. And you've mentioned a couple of times that, that a lot of this stuff is going to be called on in future. And certainly listening to the news even today, there's, there's discussions about the Hillsborough incident and people giving evidence 30 plus years down the line. That sort of gives us pause to then think about how we document all of our actions during any incident, because that can be called on to try and make account for what our decisions were and what treatment was given if those questions asked. 
of course in Scotland the, the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service operates slightly differently and we have quite a good relationship in healthcare with the Procurator Fiscals but there can be difficult questions asked by relatives of patients who they may feel may have been salvageable had more been done or about who was with them when X treatment happened or about whose responsibility was it to undertake these actions and how was that actioned. I think it's really important that we log all of that, including the pretty basic things that we should log for any patient that we have contact with. And that can be done by whichever method you normally use. But a PRF, ideally recorded for patients that you've had big involvement with, um, but the information that's contained on the casualty cruciform cards with the drugs that have been administered, with the vital signs, which clinician has perhaps been involved with them. All that can be really useful, not just because you might not then transfer the patient, but that also stays with the patient the whole way through the journey until they get to definitive care as well. I guess the next thing that gives a lot of people the heebie-jeebies is triage. And it comes across as something that's fairly straightforward in some senses, but it's phenomenally difficult to do in practice. Again, it's one of these things that people get quite hung up over the numbers in triage and they can't quite remember what X vital sign is that they should be measuring as well. The slide that I've put up for you as well has the older adult triage sieve and sort, and the sort one does get quite complicated, and that's the one to kind of undertake when you're in casualty clearing or in a hospital. The triage sieve can be very basic. If the patient's walking and doesn't have catastrophic hemorrhage requiring a tourniquet, their P3. That's not to say that those casualties don't have anything wrong with them and they do need regular monitoring and observation and sometimes medical care. But certainly at this point when they're being triaged they can be placed together in one place with someone else till you move on to the next casualty. The next aspect of that is the patient breathing. Open the airway and if they're still not breathing then you don't continue resuscitation. Again that can appear quite cold but if you have another 20 30, 50 patients that you then have to get round to try and triage, you trying to undertake those interventions, which might ultimately be futile, can then potentially result in other patients that come into their injuries. So that's a very binary decision, and the way that it's written down and organised should give us then the confidence that we're doing the most for the most in those circumstances. The respiratory rate, there are various ways of counting respiratory rates in adult triage sieve. So in England, they use what's called the MPTT24, which just means the respiratory rate is 24 rather than 29 for abnormal. But if you are struggling with those, is the patient not breathing enough or breathing too fast, they become P1. And then the capillary refill time is often used because it's easier than the heart rate. Um, but heart rate's of 100, if you think of it like that. Just having some consistent method that can then be reapplied because, of course, with your interventions, patients may move down a triage category. Or if there has been delays or the patient's deteriorated, then they have to move up a triage category. That's just a useful, consistent method for us to make sure that the clinical assessment that we're giving to those patients is the same each time and is replicable between different practitioners. This is not a kind of one-hit wonder. You get your obs checked once and then you're a P1 forevermore. This is something that is dynamic and ongoing and happens multiple times during the course of the incident. Yeah, and it's not always the easiest circumstances that we're working in as well. As we saw in London, that can be colleagues that have been injured, it can be that bystanders are getting involved in helping triage and treat casualties. It's something that can be done by 
people operating in hazardous circumstances in SORT teams and heart teams initially, but then can be replicated by consultants in pre-hospital care when the patients are then getting moved to them. And it's a useful, repeatable tool that can be used each and every time with the same sort of idea of the principles of patients have to be sorted out into the sickest first. But of course, then there is some clinical input into that as well. So a patient who's got massive airway burns, but as a P3 just now, might actually be upgraded just based on the injury pattern and mechanism because of your clinical experience, deciding that that patient might need time critical intervention sooner than they would normally have. We haven't really touched on SORT, and that's really an area where you're heading into kind of specialist interventions rather than something that we would necessarily do at the roadside. But I guess this is also something that's going to be, as you said, more in the casualty clearing centre. Yeah, and that casualty clearing centre might be the local GP surgery or community centre, or it might be the local GP community hospital. So these are all the parameters that we'll be measuring normally, but you can understand why maybe checking a Glasgow coma scale when you're in a live major incident might not be the easiest. But by the time you've either popped up your casualty clearing tent, you've got light and heat and protected from the environment that you might be able to spend a bit more time assessing those patients. You should also have a bit more of an idea that the patients that are coming to you in casualty clearing have already been through the sieve once. So you know what sort of patients you're getting first and spending a little bit more time assessing them isn't going to be deleterious to their ongoing care. Now, you talked earlier on about realistic medicine and you've touched a little bit on what you mean by that. And I guess this is doing the basics well. Like all things in pre-hospital care, and that's something I've learned from the consultants that I trained under that I'm now colleagues with in EMRS, but also from the sort of the eminent godfathers of pre-hospital care is that if you do the basic things really well, then everything else falls into line as well. Directing our resources to those at greatest risk is highly important because you can spend quite a lot of time with a P3 casualty and they'll get excellent care. But those patients who are in the higher triage categories might have actually demanded more basic interventions that could have had a bigger impact onto their outcome as well. The principle of doing the most for the most sometimes clashes with Um, the idea that everybody has the right to life and that's a difficult one for Human Rights Act considerations but also about sort of distributive justice and making sure that patients are allowed and afforded the right care that they require but that is really the principle of triage is that some patients will be declared as unsalvageable at a stage at which if there was only one patient you would go in and do lots and lots of interventions to extrication of patients safely and quickly is something that we sometimes can forget about during a major incident. A little bit of the forward momentum doesn't quite happen as quickly as it should have done. It's something that the ambulance service is very good at offering areas that we can then get ambulances in and out as long as there's adequate access and egress. But as doctors, we sometimes like to do everything that we can rather than just enough. Um, So it's about damage control and then getting that patient out to definitive care in a timely fashion. So facilitating that rescue out of the scene, so by using pain relief, sedation, decision-making, and also taking responsibility, particularly when we're working alongside our fire and rescue colleagues. They always want to know that the patient's not going to be harmed by the rescue attempt. We sometimes have to help them by setting parameters for how quickly we really need that patient out and what we are willing to accept for that to occur. Stopping the bleeding and replacing blood if required. So stopping the bleeding is something that is absolutely within the skill set of everybody, not just in pre-hospital care, but 
things like citizen aid and the civilian type things which will show people how to apply tourniquets and how to compress bleeding will save lives and it's really important that we make sure that we educate people about that as we do with basic life support and when pre-hospital care teams can come along it's about replacing that blood and blood transfusion in major instances as something that is possible in Scotland and there is blood available from our blood banks for mass casualty incidents as well and about making sure that that gets to the right patients making sure that we're oxygenating patients well and that, that there's sufficient oxygen on scene because it's really easy to run out of oxygen in a major incident when you're in forward areas and you've just got a little cylinders but making sure that someone's keeping an eye on your oxygen supplies and reserves and working with the ambulance service on that and then about limiting the disability and the pain and damage to patients as well so limb, spine and brain protection as we would do for any of our trauma patients but splinting fractures, spinal protection not necessarily immobilisation but protection and then brain protection for patients with head injuries will limit morbidity and mortality. And the definitive care piece is about getting the patient to the hospital best matched to their needs. As I've said, getting secondary transfers and major incidents can be very challenging, so direct to definitive care if at all possible, unless something is required to stabilise the patient for that transfer. And thankfully this is very much a team sport, and certainly for me, on speed dial is the trauma desk for really anything that that's kind of complex or where I'm starting to get to the edge of my bandwidth uh, so that I can offload some of these thought processes away from me and onto onto people who have got more available bandwidth to deal with it. Yeah, and the, the experienced group of clinicians that work in the trauma desk are invaluable to us as well, not just in getting us to the right incidents, but sometimes giving you that little prod in the back over the radio or the phone that you've now been on scene for 30 minutes. Do you maybe want to start moving to hospital? So they... And the Scottish Ambulance Service are at the centre of all of this, both in the identification and tasking, but also in making sure that there's some oversight that happens with that incident, particularly major incidents. So they can, in conjunction with the Ambulance Service's Strategic Operations Manager, request for tactical medical advice. So experienced consultant and pre-hospital care coming up to ambulance control to help with the dispersal of casualties, the decision-making on interventions and linking in the other responders. So... It's not all just necessarily about the, the Gucci interventions and the red teams. Most of these patients can be managed effectively by the, the standard paramedic response and the capabilities that they now have thanks to our trauma packs of pelvic binders, basic airway adjuncts and manoeuvres, about tranexamic acid and analgesia. Those are hugely important things that will help more patients in a major incident than I ever will. Basics responders and advanced paramedics bring their enhanced skill set and experience and decision making as well. And then for those patients that need that red intervention, be that emergency anesthesia or blood transfusion, and again, that expert decision making, particularly when it comes to the thresholds for intervention and the dispersal of casualties to the right place, that's something that really is a big team sport and the, the ambulance service trauma jellyfish picture. I'd like to dive in just to some of the triage categories a little and talk about some realistic, I guess, expectations for each of them. So if we start with the walking wounded, your, your P3 folks. So the P3 folks, as we've learned in these things, these are the walking wounded, usually with more minor fractures, wounds and low risk symptoms. They are still patients, so the patients are either injured or ill as a result of the incident. 
because the, the Casualty Survival Centre or Survivor Centre is where people would go who are uninjured but often significantly psychologically shocked by what's happened. But the P3s ideally should be self-ambulated to a holding area for regular medical review. They should still have treatment, so splinting of fractures, analgesia and repeat assessment. Some of these P3 casualties might end up as P2 casualties as a result of the things that we do to them. So someone with an off-ended wrist fracture who has obviously a P3 casualty might still require splintage of that, but then might require IV analgesia in order to make them comfortable enough, particularly if they're going to be delayed transportation. So regular medical review of them is really required at that stage as well. However, we still have to remember that a lot of these patients will have significant pathology and associated morbidity and mortality. Uh, I have seen several patients with significant surgical pathology who were mobilising, at least in initial throes of an incident. And of course, in bigger major incidents, about remembering that P3 casualties with catastrophic haemorrhage who've required, for example, a tourniquet to be applied to a limb injury are not P3 casualties. If they've got catastrophic haemorrhage, needing tourniquets, then they should be up triage to P1, at least until that can be assessed. Tourniquet perhaps re-evaluated as to whether it's required, and then some re-triage of them as you move along. Moving on to the P2 casualties. So they should really be the sort of the what we'll call stable stretcher patients. So these are the patients who can't necessarily self-ambulate and will need more detailed review and observation. In a bigger incident, that's often in a casualty clearing station. If we think of those patients, they will usually have injuries to head, chest, abdo, pelvis, more major fractures such as femur fractures that prevent them from mobilising. And because we spend a bit more time being able to assess and observe and treat them, we'll learn of more of the complicating factors, so comorbidities and the nasty medications that we like to give patients such as anticoagulations, pregnant patients, for example, and families trying to keep them together as well. And those are the ones that we then apply the triple T of the CSCAT to, so the triage, treat and transport as the resource allows. Because, of course, we should try and maintain as much of the resource in terms of immediate transfer to hospital for the P1 casualties. So those are the ones where there's an immediate threat to life. They've got a CABC problem, so they're either unconscious or they've got a big chest injury or breathing problem or catastrophic blood loss. And our decision-making for those ones has to be quite straightforward and binary, at least in the initial stages. So our option is to do the very basics and evacuate them as soon as possible or stop. It's the stay-and-play argument that comes up time and again. But moving on, the things that are available within the ambulance service trauma packs and the things that we sometimes as doctors forget about the importance of and therefore sometimes aren't as familiar with other things like the pelvic binders and the tourniquets. It's about knowing how they work and how you put them on and knowing how to do the very basic things because these are skills that are available on every frontline ambulance in Scotland. Because if you then get a red team involved with all of our bags and our equipment and doing all of the things that we can do, there is a significant opportunity cost because that team is then heads in treating that one patient and that often takes three, four, five clinicians to treat that one patient. And if that's required, then that's okay. But if we did that for every P1 casualty, then it may be that we never get around to actually triaging all the casualties and finding the other ones who would benefit from our care. So I guess part of this is going to be doing just enough to get them out of that initial area, 
maybe then reassessing them, potentially making some further interventions, thinking about analgesia, thinking about trying to get these people into a, more of a structured system. What are the kind of interventions that you guys would consider with your red team hat on if you were in a, that yeah. major incident setting? The casualty clearing stations that can be erected in conjunction with sort teams or a designated casualty clearing station that might be in a hard standing in a nearby building, for example, that really gives us the opportunity to turn that into an almost mini field hospital to organise our teams in a way that means that you can have P2 treatment teams and P1 treatment teams so that you've got the right equipment for those teams in the right areas and you've got the right personnel that's doing that as well. But in the casualty clearing station, you've clearly got more treatment options available to you because of your protected environment. So the things that we would potentially do there would be something very simple and straightforward like ultrasound, which can help to then re-triage categories. So it can also mean that we can decide which of the casualties goes first for relatively similar physiology. So if you think of P1 casualties, both with abdominal trauma, one has a belly full of blood on ultrasound, that might be someone that has to go to hospital more emergently for surgical intervention. The other things that we could do there would be blood administration, and that's something that every red team in Scotland has available to them, and EMRS in the West has the capability to call on Scottish National Blood Transfusion Service to request additional mass casualty blood that we can then bring along if there's going to be a larger number of casualties or if we're going to have large numbers of patients on scene needing stabilised for transfer. Tranexamic acid, you might not get out for the P1 casualties that you're immediately evacuating to hospital, but if you've got time to get intravenous or IO access, that might be something that you want to get in as early as possible if you think that the patient is likely bleeding. Intubation and surgical chest procedures. As I said, some of those things have a big opportunity cost because of the time it takes and the personnel it takes to provide that care. And that's something that if you have a more protected environment and a larger team, that you can spend the time to do or it may be that the patients that you've got in casualty clearing can't go to hospital yet because hospitals are filled up with the first phase of patients and you have to do these things to temporarily stabilize the patients. There's non-paramedic drugs that we would give if you were in casualty clearing or if you were on scene for longer so that might be advanced analgesia and sedation with things like ketamine, that might be intravenous antibiotics for patients who've had surgical chest procedures or who have open fractures and then we want to make sure that we splint things appropriately, so fitting the right kind of spinal precautions that are required for that patient at that time, and some of them are obviously very controversial, but splinting long bone fractures, both for patient comfort, but minimising blood loss and minimising ongoing disability. All those things are treatments that we would consider giving a casualty clearing that would potentially have significant impact on the morbidity and mortality and again, re-triaging those casualties after interventions have occurred. I guess that's an interesting scope given some of the huge things that we're able to put in place for a single patient. It is just adjusting those expectations down when you've got multiple patients around. Yeah, exactly. And that's the difficult thing if you've not trained and practised in these things is that you want to do what you would normally do for a single trauma patient. And that can be a large team providing multiple interventions. And yes, we don't do interventions unless they're required, but some of those things have to be deferred until the patient gets to definitive care during major incidents. So the expectations that we have for the things that we will do has to change both on our part when we train and practice for these things, 
but also in the hospitals that are going to be receiving these patients have to have an expectation of what we've done and have to know why we might have changed our thresholds for those interventions. That being said, there are still the minimum standards that we have to adhere to, so we shouldn't be, for example, administering an anaesthetic without the minimum monitoring that we should have for that. And we need to make sure that we're documenting something somewhere, either that the normal pre-hospital team notes or the patient report form, something that says what treatment we've given that patient so that that can then be forwarded on with the patient to hospital. I guess that the next thing working through logically is where we're going to start sending these people. And that can be relatively straightforward if you're in Glasgow city centre and you've got two hospitals within six miles of the incident locus. But for you guys working in remote and rural settings, that can be significantly more challenging. Again, a lot of this work has undergone significant modernisation in Scotland recently and the ambulance services piloted in various areas and gone live with in other areas the trauma triage tools both for adults and for paediatric patients and those can give a useful framework for us to perform some sort of assessment of the patient's physiology which is step one and the most sensitive part of the trauma triage tool for identifying major trauma the injury pattern then down to the mechanisms of injury to decide which patients can safely be managed locally and which then need a higher level of care. So if we think of the major trauma triage tool, it's kind of secondary to the major incident triaging that we've already done. So, But also making sure that the hospital best matched to those patients' needs is the one that receives them. So there may be local regional variations in where, for example, burns care is provided. And if someone is a P1 casualty with burns, well, it may be actually that the best place for them is the place that has the burns centre on site rather than having multiple trips back and forward between different hospitals. But as I said, the whole Scottish Trauma Network has modernised with the centralisation of some trauma services in areas of Scotland, particularly in the central belt. That means it should be relatively straightforward then to decide which patients go to which levels of care. There has been a lot of work in Scotland also deciding on the numbers of casualties that can be managed in various hospitals and as part of the mass casualty planning, each hospital has had to declare how many patients they could receive in the first two hours of a major incident and still operate effectively. Clearly, the bigger hospitals will have bigger capacity for patients and smaller places will maybe be able to manage one, two or three patients. But that's a useful framework for the ambulance service and for pre-hospital responders to think of sending patients where they will get the right care and we're not overwhelming one hospital such that they end up unable to perform for the other patients that are still in the department or that we have overwhelmed one hospital such that patients don't get good care. So the triage tools are really, really useful, but they can only be part of the way that we operate in a major incident and making sure that the patients get to the right place first time. And I guess the beauty of all of this is that it's not all things that necessarily have to happen on scene and to an extent, you want to try and push some of these decisions to people with a better situational overlook. Yeah, precisely. And being an incident command in these sort of incidents is very difficult. And I take my hat off to some of the ambulance incident commanders that I've worked with who seem to have a unnatural coolness in a major incident and be able to take those decisions very rationally. And they've clearly been involved in incidents before and practiced this a lot as well. But it's difficult to do that when you're in the heat of the scene and being able to fall back on other people outside of the scene to give you some support 
So checking in with hospitals, have you still got capacity to receive more casualties now that we've sent you the first wave? What do you need from us? And by the way, if we've not done X, Y and Z interventions, can you pick that up at hospital for us? Things like antibiotics will regularly be missed. When a normal trauma patient would have received that, it's very easy to understand why you would perhaps forget that until the patient's already at hospital. So being in command sometimes feels that you're sitting in the middle of the fire, but having friends that are outside that looking in and helping you out can just help smooth the whole thing out. Now, glad you mentioned training because none of this is going to work well the first time you try it. So I guess there's definitely a huge role for training and for, for simulation. Yeah, and that can be relatively low fidelity, but still effective. So in the ambulance service, we had one of our EMRS CPD sessions, which was a major incident update day, where we had one of the training department come in and deliver what's called an Emergo exercise with lots of little magnetic figures on whiteboards and managed to make this incident so pressured and so realistic that we actually were having clinicians debating and almost arguing about what the best way to manage these little stick-on characters was. So simulation doesn't necessarily have to be lots of fake patients for it to be quite effective. And those leading into sort of tabletop exercises can then realistically give you a feel for the timeline for how long one of these incidents takes to manage because some of the things that we think that we do quickly in a tabletop can actually take quite a significant time. So in a tabletop exercise, taking account of times of interventions is really important as well. But that's useful for picking holes in major incident plans, seeing where the problems are and how we would actually in reality do these things. Because saying I would phone such and such a person only really works if I know that person's phone number and it's not an individual basis that would then fall down if that person went on holiday. Call-in tests are usually a good way to get the heart rate up of any pre-hospital provider because it looks very realistic for a major incident when the message comes through, but there is a little bit that says test message. But that's really useful to check that the systems are in place to make sure that people are getting the calls and that they then respond appropriately because it may be that you've had new staff members join the service and they're not sure of what to do when that balloon goes up and to make sure that that's tested and fed back because that then builds a resilient system. Training with your equipment, as I said earlier, even knowing how the most basic pieces of your equipment work, how to troubleshoot them is crucially important, particularly for doctors and particularly for doctors in red teams. It's very easy to maintain an oversight role on most trauma jobs, but in a major incident, you have to be able to operate every piece of your equipment and troubleshoot that as well. And then a little bit of CPD for folks. The NHS England's clinical guidelines for major incidents is a really, really useful document with lots of one-page vignettes on clinical injury patterns, illness patterns, and things that you can expect to see during major incidents with little one-page bullet point type tables. It's laid out really well, and I would commend it to anybody to spend a few hours having a read through that and maybe directing further online learning that they've got as well. It's a very well laid out document that and gives a nice kind of walkthrough from the initial point of care minimal kit right the way through to actually how you need to think about your recess room, how you need to lay out your surgical teams. So it's yeah. uh, it's well worth a read. You mentioned simulation earlier on and it's a big passion. Clearly with basics, we, we do quite a lot of simulation on a smaller scale. But I guess the advantage of major instant simulation is that you can have some fun with it. You can do it at night, you can do it in some interesting places and have some pretty exotic setups. 
Yeah, and it's also a really useful way to actually learn how the other services and agencies work. So we, before COVID, we organised and were involved in very large-scale ongoing major incident training at the Scottish Fire and Rescue Training Campus involving all agencies, which then meant that you had a realistic response of, if I ask the fire service to cut this person out of the car, what does that mean? What does it look like? What does it sound like? And how does that then impact on the patient? There were simulated patients involved in these. These were often volunteers who got all the trauma makeup on, had the simulated injury patterns, and then would tell you if you were doing a bad job of immobilising them or trying to extricate them. And some of them were quite into their method acting and would tell you vociferously how unhappy they were at what you were doing with them as well. <laughs> these are the things that are hugely invaluable because there's nothing gets your heart rate up like actually hearing the fire service equipment working, like being made to crawl through the fake crash train to go and try and get to a casualty to treat them to the practicalities of how you're actually going to communicate as a team when you're all wearing dust masks and you have to try and treat someone in situ. It's really useful to stress inoculate yourself, but also to test out your training, your equipment and your systems for how you operate when you're there, but also how you operate in amongst all the other agencies that will be responding to these ones. Even people like Jeff, who's one of our very experienced advanced paramedics, in the west of Scotland and a retrieval practitioner of many years experience can look somewhat stressed out by a major incident exercise in which there were no patients but even just trying to make simple phone calls he was having to remove himself and go hundreds of yards away from the major incident to try and find the consultant that he was supposed to be working with on that day so it's really useful to test out these things and the biggest major incident exercise that I was involved in previously was called exercise border reaver there's some really good footage of that from Police Scotland on YouTube, which people can go and have a look at as well. But there were about 150 casualties involved in the first wave of that. Very, very realistic incident with armed response units, fire, lots of counter-terror assets and helicopters flying in and out and so on. And there was a couple of points at which we had to try and remind some of the care providers at that that they were simulated patients and you don't actually have to cannulate them and give them medications. But that led to a lot of interest in the media at that time because it was a big thing for shaping how there was mutual aid between ambulance services when there was a long, protracted and large major incident, but also just about how we work alongside the fire and rescue colleagues and the police in something that might be an unsafe environment as well. So that's what I would commend to anybody who gets the opportunity to take part in one of these exercises Take the time, go along on the day, put yourself out there and test yourself. Even if you feel that it didn't go well, you'll learn so much by exposing yourself to that. And the learning points for you might be about the areas in which you need to operate. When you look after patients on a day-to-day -day basis that you find easy, but as soon as you have 10 patients, that can become extremely challenging. I guess it's that learning and building on that and building up an experience base that's hugely useful. One of the things that always crops up at these big multi-agency simulation days is doing that debrief. And it's a pretty key area from any major incident or from any significant training. It can be done very well and it can be done poorly. And increasingly, I think the ambulance service is doing it really effectively. So it's being done hot at the scene with those that have responded immediately to issue sort of immediate orders of here's what you need to do next in order to get this all tidied up and that may be where to send your documentation to how you're going to get your car back to base how you're going to get back to base but also just a quick checkpoint to make sure that people are okay because these incidents are very challenging and you can feel pretty frazzled after it 
and there's nothing like trying to get to bed and get straight to sleep after a major incident to realise how amped up you were by it. And the adrenaline dump afterwards can be pretty considerable. The cold debrief ideally should be done maybe a couple of weeks after the incident as well. And then you've had a chance to review all of the documentation. The outcomes for patients will often be known by that point as well. And some more of the learning points can be teased out and agreed at that point. The multi-agency debrief will involve all the agencies that were responding to that incident and that can then have very useful wider learning for the agencies that commission major incident services. So the Scottish Government would have an interest in multi-agency debriefs as to areas in which the agencies responding have had to improve but it also gives that wider learning of what we thought was happening and what the shared mental model with the other people were because it can be something that's relatively straightforward to us but can seem extremely scary and challenging to some other responders particularly if they're not familiar with the way that we operate and um, particularly if we've had to perform invasive surgical procedures on patients that have been witnessed by bystanders or the police or fire who might never have seen that before and will never see it again they i'm sure are thankful for all of that feeds into for bigger incidents post-incident reports fatal accident inquiries coroner's inquests etc and that's one of the reasons for making sure that your documentation of your decision making and your interventions is meticulous because as you've said it can be a long time between the incident and any of these inquiries and you won't be able necessarily to remember exactly how and why you made those decisions but also things like all of the documentation from all the services can be pulled together hospital notes as they've gone on can be pulled together that'll all be used in evidence Things like WhatsApp messages and call logs from the ambulance service will all be pulled in. So all that information is really important to make sure that it's done properly so that an accurate representation of what's actually occurred is then presented rather than the way that that can be interpreted by the media. One of the interesting things, being in a non-statutory agency, so responding as a basics responder, you often fall through the cracks a little bit. And whilst the statutory agencies will go through this debriefing cycle, a lot of basics responders end up dropping off the communications lists because they're not part of that formed response. Yeah. And it can be quite difficult either to pick up on the learning from other incidents or to feed back in to that review process. And that's hugely difficult because several things will be lost. The ability of us to check that that basics responder is okay is lost because that basics responder might be a solo GP in a rural community and they've been involved in a major incident in that community. But it also is us losing useful information that that basics responder might have had about the hows and the whys and what the atmosphere was like at the scene and why things happened rather than what happened. So certainly in Scotland, as I said, we're a small enough community that we know most of our SORT teams and the National Risk and Resilience Department of the Ambulance Service, but it's important that we as EMRS, as the Ambulance Service, that we make sure that we know which responders have been there so that we can make sure that everybody that needs to come to the debrief is offered that opportunity and that that debrief happens in a timely fashion because there's no point doing it six months down the line when everything's cooled down and we've forgotten all the useful information. But certainly an open offer, if there's a major incident in Scotland and there's a basics responder that goes, just drop me a tweet and I'll make sure that you're invited along to the debrief. And we'll put your Twitter handle up with this. Now, you were mentioning things like screening for psychological injury. There's a variety of ways of doing that and different ways of debriefing each other. There's conflicting evidence about that and I'm not an expert in it, although it's something that I think that we, as the ambulance service and EMRS, 
are now paying a lot more attention to, particularly involved in more and more and more of these incidents. So if you think that you're okay after an incident, you might be, but you might just not have insight into how it has actually impacted you until days, weeks, months down the line, or until you go to an incident that's similar and somehow brings you memories of the previous incident. There can be a bit of a grief reaction after these major incidents, particularly if it's been a particularly harrowing or difficult one. And that can be normal and people debrief themselves and as teams in different ways. And it's important that we recognise that some people just won't do as well by going over the grisly details of the incident straight away, but making sure that we make sure that people get home okay and that they're offered the opportunity to debrief shortly after that and that someone is keeping an eye on them. In the retrieval service, we have a very good administrator who will name drop as Anne, who looks after us all. And she has a really good insight into when people might just need a wee bit more debriefing. And in those who their resilience has maybe taken a bit of a knock as a result of one of these. And she's good at identifying that and pointing it out to the people that need to get involved and making sure that they get the support that they require to be ongoing, successful and healthy practitioners, but also just to make sure that we're looking after our work friends as well. Now, JP, over the space of nearly a couple of hours, we've covered a huge amount of ground. We've talked about a lot of different incidents and a lot of different outcomes. And you've mentioned a couple of things that I think we'll put links up to with this blog in terms of take-homes and reminders and aid memoirs. Just run us through those things again so that folk have got them fresh in their mind. Yeah, so a couple of things that are easy and free to find. So the Jessup Aid Memoir cards, so they're given out all over the country to ambulance services via NRRD, etc. But that's actually available through the Jessup app, which is free. You can get that through the App Store and I'm sure through the Google Play Store as well. And that's a really useful quick app to have a flick through when you're having a quiet hour on base or when you're in between patients or if you're on for a basic shift, just having a wee flick through that just to refresh your memory of that. The methane app from Prometheus, if it's not something that's in the basics app or your services app, for example, is a really useful crib sheet, both for refreshing your memory of it, but also when an incident happens for real, for being able to, on the fly, input that information and then export that as a PDF or as a text file. And that's something that's both a useful refresher and a useful tool. And then finally, the big NHS England major incident guideline, which I'll make sure that you get the link to the PDF. Is a really good couple of hours of CPD of revision and refresher. Brilliant. Thank you. Now, we ask all of our presenters to give us three top tips to take away. What are your thoughts in terms of both of the chats that you've had with us? I mean, it's a huge topic. It's something that I'm devoting so much of my professional career to now as well that I'm trying to distill all of my learning so far into a few top tips could be relatively challenging. So the things that I think are probably most important in the first phases, I would say that using a useful, consistent method of communication with a recognised framework for a consistent and replicable communication is the most important thing. So learning that methane, getting the methane app, doing that time and again, using it. So don't be frightened to think that I need to declare something as major incident, stand by, and I'm going to use that methane message, changes the mindset of responders to make sure that everybody's on the same page and realises that at least someone somewhere thinks that that's a big thing. I think realistic medicine, even in a major incident, is an accurate representation of what we should strive for. So it's about applying our basic clinical interventions to those who need it most 
and making sure that we've got a consistent eye on where that opportunity cost might impact if we do too much for one patient, how that might detract from the other patients. And anything that you can do to ensure that you've looked at the plan and the action cards and you know the principles will help when the pressure and the stakes are high. So tabletop, drill the things, practice and train every opportunity that you can get, I think will keep you right in the long run. JP, that's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Not at all. Happy anytime. And you've got my Twitter handle. So if anybody wants to DM me with questions, then just fire away. Thanks very much for having me on, Dave. Not at all. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.